You're listening to the Good Food for Glasgow podcast. My name is Talia and in this episode I'll be chatting to Environmental Project Coordinator at SEMBO, Andrew Williams, who will introduce himself in just a moment. Andrew also has a podcast and I feature on the latest episode talking all about food. So if you want to hear someone else asking the questions and me answering them for once, you can find the link in the bio. In this episode, we talk about the climate sector, treatment of workers in agriculture and fishing, and the environmental systems change that we need to see, as well as how ethnic minorities experience and contribute to all of these areas. Keep listening to find out more. Andrew, please could you introduce yourself, say a little bit about your role at SEMVO and what you do? Yeah, thanks so much, Talia, for having me on the podcast. My name is Andrew Williams. I am the Environmental Projects Coordinator here at SEMVO. SEMBO is an organisation that's been around for 20 years and the first thing that you have to remember is that there are lots of acronyms attached to it. The first one being SEMBO itself. So SEMBO stands for the Council of Ethnic Minority Voluntary Sector Organisations and it's a clunky way of saying that we are a great organisation that works to build the capacity of the ethnic minority voluntary sector in Scotland. So we work with 600 plus organisations all across Scotland, led by ethnic minority people. And we seek to give them the tools to build their organisations. We signpost them to funding. We can help with governance issues. We can help around employability and financial management. And we're also strategic partners of the Scottish Government Equality Unit. So crucially, we have an in, if you like, into what the government is thinking. And the work that I do is in the environment team. And I have my two lovely colleagues, Acus and Christopher, who I work with. And we kind of run two different projects. Again, acronym AHOY, we have MN and then REAP. And MN stands for the Ethnic Minority Environmental Network. And REAP stands for the Race Equality Environmental Programme. The Ethnic Minority Environmental Network exists to support and amplify the voices of ethnic minority-led organisations who are working in the field of the environment. We see so many of these all across Scotland doing amazing work, whether it's cycling projects or community gardens, people doing work with renewables. All across Scotland, there are these amazing grassroots projects that are being led by people on the ground in their communities to try and improve Scotland's resilience as we move towards a lower carbon future. And the network's just there to try and give a platform to those organisations to allow them to network amongst themselves, to be able to learn, to be able to come up with what's good practice, what's worked in one organisation that might work in another organisation. And to try and, I suppose, also give a unified voice when it comes to the consultative process with government. Because Scottish government will often come to us and say, what do your members think about X, Y or Z? And it's our job to try and find out what is the variety of views out there and what's going to be the most effective policy measures that we can ask Scottish Government to try and deliver for us that's going to help the organisations that we represent. We have a number of strands to how we run the network. We have a fortnightly newsletter. We have a little podcast, which I know that you are going to be a guest on. So thank you very much for taking part in that. Uh, We do lots of face-to-face events and online events as well. And that's where the magic really happens with the network is where you can kind of get people together. But I think what we've realised is that if we just work just purely with those people who are on the ground, we will get so far... But what we really need to do is also be working with the big mainstream environmental organisations. And that's where the second string of what we do, the Race Equality Environmental Programme, really comes into play. So what my colleague Christopher and I work on with the REAP programme is trying to instil in large, mainstream, mostly white environmental organisations in Scotland the value 
of having a diverse approach to the work that they're doing. So getting them to see the value in treating anti-racism, race equality, as being an integral part of the work that they're doing towards a fairer Scotland and towards a climate ready Scotland. We do a lot of work with people around things like recruitment and staff retention and internal policies. And what we always try to say to those organisations is that it's absolutely not about taking a tokenistic approach or a box ticking approach. We want them to see that by being anti-racist organisations, they're actually going to make the work that they're doing better. They're going to make their members feel better about the work they're doing. They're going to make their staff feel better about the work that they're doing. They're going to make the general public feel more inclined to support them. So if you imagine, and this is where the lousy analogies begin, but if you imagine a bridge, we have the MN network on one side of the bridge trying to lift up these ethnic minority-led environmental organisations. On the other side of the bridge, we have the, you know, the big mainstream, large-scale environmental organisations that we're trying to encourage to be better partners and better advocates for the anti-racist work that we're doing and what we're trying to do is to make that bridge as short and as wide as it can possibly be because we want as much traffic to be going between those two as possible and trying to link up the big boys if you like with the small grassroots organizations and get them to work in harmony and we've had some great examples of that which have worked really really well so it's hard work you know I said to somebody yesterday I suppose you know my job description is to try and eradicate racism in the environmental sector in Scotland you know and I'm good, but I'm probably not that good. But it is work that is worth doing. I think that's for certain. Absolutely. So thank you for that fantastic overview of everything that you do and particularly for explaining all of those acronyms. That's very helpful. I wonder if you could describe a little bit more building on what you said around those mainstream majority white environmental organisations. How would you describe the existing and current typical landscape of environmental organisations and what are some of the implications of that? I mean, I think the starting point that I would say is that what we have at the moment is a passive situation on the whole. I'll say there are no organisations that we've worked with or tried to work with or have come across who say we are not interested in working with ethnic minority groups. There are no groups that we engage with who sort of say this isn't important to us or we're actively opposed to this or anything like that. But what they normally say is something along the lines of, you know, our door is always open or everyone is welcome to be involved in the projects that we are doing. And of course, that's beautiful. And that's a really good starting point, if you like. But what we try and encourage those organisations to see, I suppose, is that there are hidden barriers that are preventing ethnic minority organisations being more involved in the environmental sector and the nature sector. And we know this because the data shows us that the nature sector is the second least diverse sector in Scotland after agriculture. And agriculture is also hugely important <laughs> in terms of nature recovery and in terms of the environment. So we've got the two really important sectors, if you like, that are the least diverse sectors that we have in Scotland. Now, the reason that that's an issue is that there is a huge amount that we can learn from the ethnic minority communities who are out there and who are working in this field. And one of the expressions that we use a lot, especially my colleague Acus delivers a lot of training around this, is traditional ecological knowledge. And that sounds complicated, but it's actually just the concept that actually a lot of the things that we are reinventing in the Western world or, or think that we have somehow magically discovered, you know, this has actually been going on all across the world without our permission, <laughs> as it were. And things that we think are really, really clever things that we've come up with 
are actually things that lots of communities across the globe have been doing since time immemorial. So there's a huge amount that we can learn from these communities who are working in Scotland. But I think the second part of it is that what we have to understand when we're thinking about these unconscious barriers that organisations maybe don't even realise are in place that are stopping people from getting involved in the projects that they're working on is that the ethnic minority communities that we work with are hugely engaged with climate change. This is not an abstract or a theoretical issue for them. They are often sometimes diaspora communities who are living in Scotland, but a lot of them will have friends, family, previous generations of their families who will still be living in areas that are being affected by the worst ravages of climate change right now. We see this in Scotland that people saying, oh, it's gonna be the hottest month of the year again. And it's still, to me, it's still at the jokey, oh, we'll be able to grow our own wine soon, or at least my suntan's gonna improve. It's still at that kind of jokey level. Whereas if you're in Pakistan and a third of your country is underwater, it is not a laughing matter. And that's where the connections that these communities have with those, as I say, friends and family who are still living in these countries that are being absolutely torn apart by climate change right now is hugely important because I think their voices, if we listen to them, can contribute to the sense of urgency that we have to have in tackling this problem. We're based in Scotland, so you know we try and contain ourselves to the work that we can do in Scotland because it's already far too much for us to do, frankly. But we do also have a global and an international perspective on this. And you see countries around the world who are being the worst affected by climate change are often the ones who have contributed the least to what is causing the changes that we're seeing. And I think there's a huge amount of hubris really in the Western world and certainly in the UK where people say things like, oh, but you know, China are building all these power stations. What we do is a drop in the ocean. Well, actually, historically, this is our fault, ultimately. And we are the ones who have caused this problem. And even on a moral level, and even if you could persuade me that actually people doing something in Scotland wasn't going to make a great difference, I would still say that it was the right thing to do. Because morally, I think we have an obligation to do our bit. So that's a very long-winded way of saying that listening to the voices of ethnic minority communities here in Scotland and as I say, our role in terms of the MN network, in terms of amplifying those voices, I think has a hugely important role to play in terms of how we tackle the climate crisis that we're all facing. Absolutely. Such a rich answer there. And so much in that that is, is so interesting to think about. I guess what's coming out for me and there are a few things I definitely want to link back to but just this idea of the moral responsibility and the accountability that you're talking about and that this is our fault because the UK first of all colonized a lot of the rest of the world created this global system that means there's an asymmetry and if we think about principles of climate justice where people are going to be worse affected and that we don't have a global system where those people have as much power to make the same change and we've constructed a system that deliberately disadvantages the global south and then that we're not being so directly impacted at the moment. I guess it's two parallel and very much interlinked issues. That's obviously why your work is so important and I wonder if there's any more to say around that. Yeah I mean I think this goes to the heart of a lot of the issues that I think that we face in terms of the climate crisis, and I'm thinking in particular of the UK here, there is a real disconnect between some of the messaging, if you like, and then the reality. And I think we've had a long period in the UK of successive governments, to be fair, I don't think it's a party political thing. I think it's more of a, maybe not particularly useful expression, but it may be more of an establishment kind of thing. 
where there's the attitude of slow and steady wins the race really and we should probably think about changing our light bulbs and you know that's going to be difficult because a lot of people like those old light bulbs so we better have a five-year switchover period or something like that for people to change their light bulbs to more energy efficient ones and maybe after that we'll think about recycling and to my mind it's a bit of a binary choice really you have to either accept that this is an existential threat or you have to say oh, we don't think this is that important. Now, I think, based on the data, based on the science, based on what everybody much cleverer than me tells me, that this is an existential threat and that it is something that is accelerating and something that we need to do something about very, very quickly. Now, I don't see that pace happening at the moment. I see, at best, stasis, and at worst, things sort of rolling back. I never like to be deliberately controversial, but I think it's okay to be controversial once in a while. And it has occurred to me, and I'm on the record as saying this, that things are really only going to change in the UK when we have an event that causes hundreds of thousands of white people to die. Now, I don't want that to happen. That is not what I wake up hoping for. And I spend all of my days trying to work to stop that happening. But in the back of my mind, I do sometimes wonder whether it's gonna take a climate change 9-11 for people to actually stop what they're doing and start doing something different very, very quickly. And I think just to add, one of the tragedies, if you like, of what we saw with COVID-19 was that there was a clear case study, the most perfect example you could get of an incident which caused everything to stop, everything to change, and for people to completely remodel their lives in the space of a couple of months and to go from absolute normality to not leaving the house, to wearing a mask, all of these other things that COVID brought with it. And as awful as COVID was, and as tragic as it was for so many people, the one silver lining that I saw in that was, this is an opportunity for us to really grasp this climate change issue now and say, look, we've shown we can do it. We've shown we can completely change our lives if we want to. Now we have this, which is a much, much bigger threat than COVID, let's say. Surely this is the opportunity now to make some real changes and we're going to have a nationwide renewables rollout. This just transition thing is going to be hugely accelerated. We're going to do it in two or three years and we're going to revolutionise our country. We're going to be energy independent. We're going to be food independent. We're going to have this completely revolutionised nation which is going to be fair and forward facing and ready for the future. And we didn't do it. I'm naturally a very optimistic person, but things like the situation over the past four or five years where you kind of see this trajectory make me feel quite pessimistic because it does make me feel like, oh, I wonder what it is going to take for this to actually change and for people to actually do this. And we've had all this stuff from the Committee on Climate Change over the last week saying we're missing all these targets. And the only reason that we were ever hitting the targets was because of COVID. It was because people weren't traveling and they weren't using their cars and they weren't flying. And now that that's out of the way, these targets are essentially meaningless. And it's only a matter of time before the national government and the Scottish government will have to fess up to the fact that they are not going to hit these numbers. There is just no way. And at that point, some people like me will be upset and other people will be, oh, great, in it? Because my suntan's going to improve and we're going to be able to produce our own wine, aren't we? So it's going to be amazing. It's a difficult road ahead, I think.
I think it's really interesting what you're saying around what will it take for people to actually wake up and realize how much of a problem this is. I think you're right, I agree with you, what you said around it's gonna take a tragedy where a load of white people die and that's what it's gonna take for the UK government to actually take this as a serious issue. I think we've seen it with so many tragedies over the past few months. I think the whole refugee crisis, we're seeing the racism that so many European nations will just let people die in the sea rather than let a boatload of people into their country that is a drop in the ocean and the moral responsibility that they have. So I think you're absolutely right that that's how we see things play out. I guess what I'm thinking around, I can't imagine a day that I would wake up and the government would have announced something that would be the big plan to stop climate change because I guess I feel like it's just not a priority. And I'm a bit jealous that you have the ear of the Scottish government and you have your way in. That's very valuable. But I wonder what you think around when governments are faced with so many more politically pressing issues, you know, they have their typical portfolio of education, health, whatever it is. Climate just seems to take a back seat so often. How do you feel about whether our current government structures are really best placed to actually be the ones combating climate change when it seems like, you know, their plates are already full? when it is such a pressing issue and such a massive issue and spans everything. It requires a complete overhaul of our current ways of existing. Do we see any any government actually taking that leap and having the courage to do it? I think the answer to that is that there's always going to be something else that you can say that you need to deal with that day rather than dealing with climate change because that is the unique nature of the problem that we're facing, if you like. And again, not to dwell on COVID, but where you have a situation that you have you're announcing daily infection rates and daily deaths, there is going to be pressure on you to sort that out immediately. Now, you could argue that we could do that with the climate crisis. And you could argue that you could probably produce those numbers now, and they would probably be pretty frightening. But there's no political will to do that, I don't think. And that's the issue is that there's always going to be something that people are going to feel, well, this is a priority or that's a priority. And that's where my concern comes in that what is it that's going to tip this into being something that is on the front of people's minds, not the back of people's minds. But I think you touched on something there, which is really valuable because you have all these portfolios and there's all these other things going on. Whereas sustainability and their approach to climate crisis should be going through every strata. It should have something about how this area of their work relates to the climate. That's the type of approach that I would like to see governments taking. Where, yeah, sure, you have a Secretary of State for Education, but part of their brief is also around the climate crisis. So how are they using the curriculum to make sure that we are educating kids in a way that they understand the challenges that they're gonna face in their lifetimes. And perhaps that then influences some of the choices they make in terms of the types of industry that they want to go into. Thinking about the health service, how are we training people to be able to respond to people who are gonna be affected by the climate crisis because we're gonna see increasing numbers of people dying from either severe cold or severe sun or other severe weather effects. So I would argue that rather than having it separated out where it has far less clout and far less influence, everybody at every level of government should have the climate crisis as something that is in their portfolio and is something that they are trying to tackle, difficult as it is, you know. There are a lot of parallels, I think, with climate and nature and food in that they're cross-cutting. I think it's really interesting what you're saying around you. It's not something that we should be dealing with separately because it is relevant and could be integrated into all areas. Something that I didn't know that you said was that besides the climate sector, that agriculture is the least 
diverse area of work in the UK. There are some organizations that I'd like to mention that are doing a lot of work around this that maybe you know there's Land in Our Names or Lion who have done so much work around the unequal access to land for people of color and thinking about how land is controlled in the UK and who owns the most land and how disproportionate that is. So they do a lot of great work and I think there was a lot in what you were saying at the beginning that very much applies to the food system as well. To talk a little more on agriculture and I guess from your work in trying to bring other voices into the climate sector. Do you have any thoughts on how in food and agriculture specifically the value that we could gain from having more inclusion and and listening better to those perspectives and to that traditional ecological knowledge that people hold? The first thing to say is you're absolutely right. There are lots of amazing groups doing fantastic work in this area. So it's not at all to ignore the great work that is being done there. And I think the second thing maybe to note is that I suppose agriculture is something of a unique sector in that to a greater or lesser extent, it is hereditary. People who are farm owners or land owners are then passing that on to their descendants and obviously there will be people who are joining the sector fresh if you like but for the most part it is people who can trace back for centuries perhaps that their family has had stewardship over that particular area of land so I absolutely understand the nuances in that and that there are other factors that are affecting that I mean it would be a separate discussion about about land ownership in the UK which is another thing which I think is very much in need of reform but what we tend to find and I think this is an issue which again cuts across a lot of political policy I suppose but is that where ethnic minority communities or people of colour are involved in agriculture or fisheries it is at a very menial level and a very poorly paid level essentially so there'll be people obviously doing fruit picking and things like that I was speaking to an amazing organization called Open Seas the other week who do some fantastic work and their head of policy Bill Taylor was saying that they have this real issue with migrant workers working on boats that are in international waters off the coast of Scotland so there are people from Sri Lanka Ghana India and the Philippines who are working crewing a lot of these boats they're not allowed to come more than 12 nautical miles close to the coast. They're sort of treated as if they're in international waters, but to all intents and purposes, this is happening in Scotland. And people who are being paid, I think he said that the average wage was around £13,000 a year, which presumably is a lot of money for people who are then sending that money back home or whatever, but it was completely illegal in terms of Scots law, in terms of UK law. So I think there's an issue in terms of when we look at those industries around agriculture and fisheries, what we don't want to have, I suppose, is just the percentage of people involved in that industry ticking up but actually the percentage of people who are in positions of power or positions of authority remains zero essentially because the power of the land the authority remains in the hands of the people who always had that power because it's hereditarily been their land if you like so we have to be careful about how we manipulate those statistics I suppose and make sure that we're focusing on the quality of people's engagement with those industries rather than just trying to hit some kind of arbitrary target. And absolutely what you're touching on there around fair work and fair wages and agriculture and food production is definitely a really key issue that is definitely relevant in thinking about how we build a better food system and that's a crucial point. There was actually a, I'll link it in the description of the podcast, just something that came out recently, some testimonies from seasonal workers who had been fruit picking and who described the completely inhumane conditions that they had to live in, but also how they just weren't treated as real people at all. And I wonder in terms of the exploitation of workers that you're talking about, 
out and in those fisheries on those boats. In terms of what enables that kind of action, and I guess it's when that sort of racialized exploitation aligns with a capitalist mindset and people that there are really just trying to maximize their profit margins. And how do you think those things align? Is it that racism allows that and facilitates that sort of exploitation? How would you kind of connect those things, would you say? Yeah, I mean, I think it's absolutely a a problem that has racism at its roots. And I think it goes back to what, you know, you were saying earlier about things like the the rhetoric around small boats arriving in the UK and things like that, where there's a huge amount of othering that goes on. And I think we see that again in, in every corner of life, if you like, that people see people arriving to the UK on small boats as being a completely different species almost to their own existence. People seem to have lost the kind of sense of empathy that I'm sure we used to have of seeing people fleeing poverty and war and desperate situations who I'm sure in the past would have been welcomed to this country. But for whatever reason now, I think it's not difficult to see the reasons why, because there's government rhetoric and there's media rhetoric, essentially, that is fueling it. People now have an attitude that somehow we're dealing with completely alien, is the only word that I can use to describe it, an alien group of people who are clearly not welcome in our country. And I think once you have that mindset, it's very easy to then see things like the exploitation of crews on fishing boats or whatever as a very, very minor problem frankly. Because, you know, if they didn't want to do it, they wouldn't do it, you know, and that's often the attitude, isn't it? And I'm not one of those people who blames everything on Brexit at all. But I think there was this expectation after the Brexit vote that somehow there'd be this kind of return to this golden age of where perhaps kids on their summer holidays would go and uh, pick fruit and, and that would sort of solve the nation's problems. And of course, it just hasn't happened. And it's no good for the people who are growing the produce. And it's no good for the people who would ordinarily have come and done great job of work and been paid for it and then gone home again because they are missing out and it's no good for us at the business end of the supply chain because we're not getting the food that we would normally have so it just feels like we're missing something really obvious in this country i don't quite know what it is people can see the problems and there are obvious solutions to them but there's a kind of pig-headedness and a sort of stubbornness that people just aren't willing to accept the solutions that are in front of them i think i'm not sure why that is Hmm. I suppose it's easier to see the solutions that are fed to us. It's not convenient for the powers that be to feed us the the real solutions because they don't really want to enact them because it's not politically convenient. So yeah, so, so much that's really interesting in what you're saying. On a more positive note, and to keep what we're talking around around those intersections around food and different ethnic minorities and maybe those knowledges that are held. So I should say this episode of the podcast is a collaborative episode. So we did an episode over on your podcast, The Donut of Doom, which will be linked in the description. But on that episode, and you mentioned kind of the importance of valuing those food knowledges and and the importance of those. So maybe you could say a little bit more about that on this episode. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it is easy to become downhearted often when we're talking about this stuff. But I think ultimately you have to stay positive because there is a lot to be positive about and we do have the tools at our disposal to sort this out. While it's easy to say, oh, nothing's gonna change or there's no political will to make this happen, that can shift and it will shift if enough of us demand that it shifts ultimately. I mean, one of the things that I touched on earlier is this study of traditional ecological knowledge and looking at the lessons that we can learn from ethnic minority communities who are now based in Scotland and trying to see some of the techniques and things that they've had 
traditionally, you know, in their communities for centuries and how we can then adapt those to be used here in the UK. I mean, an obvious example of that is that lots of the communities that we work with will be culturally vegetarian. You know, they won't be meat eaters. And although it's very easy to think that veganism was invented three or four years ago by somebody who had the world's first soya latte, actually, these ways of eating have been around for centuries for culturally relevant reasons. And obviously, as a byproduct of eating a vegetarian diet, you will inevitably produce fewer carbon emissions. And the food is delicious, by the way. So that's uh, obviously another amazing part of it. And I think if we're saying as a nation, well, part of our drive towards net zero and all the rest of it is going to be to encourage people to reduce their intake of meat and dairy. And again, the data shows that we should all probably be doing that. Here's a great way of doing that. Let's get some of these amazing communities who have fantastic recipes and amazing tasty food that everybody in Britain already enjoys. Let's get them to try and spearhead this and try and use that knowledge that's, that's already there in our communities. Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, there are so many delicious recipes that we could be making and that we could be eating. I want to move on to my final question. I usually like to ask a forward-facing question. What change and what future in Scotland would you like to see if you were to imagine that all of your work at SEMVO and with the Ethnic Minority Environmental Network were to be successful, what would that look like? What sort of a future are you wishing and working towards? And I mean, that is what it's all about for me, I think, is trying to think about what legacy are we leaving? How are people going to look back on us and look at the work that we've done? Are they going to think, oh, those guys were wasting their time? Or are they going to think, oh, you know what? Yeah, if it wasn't for them, you know, we'd be in a different position just now. And one of the things that recently has really helped me to sort of crystallise that in my mind, if you like, has been some work we've been doing with the University of Glasgow. And we were working with them and a commercial partner called Education Evolved to develop a computer game called Seven. This is like the just the absolute pinnacle of my career to date, basically working on a computer game as a big fan of computer games growing up. And what the game seeks to do is to try and showcase, if you like, the experience of ethnic minority communities in Scotland in the run-up to our tentative net zero date of 2045. So the game takes you through seven different levels, doing different things that, again, bring in these concepts of traditional ecological knowledge. So things like planting wildflower meadows, harvesting rainwater, all that kind of stuff to try and build this sustainable future that we all want. I think it's really easy in life in general to become really focused on either the here and now or the very near future. And I think what we need more of at every level, particularly a political level, is a much longer term vision for how we want to renew and rebuild our nation. And I think we've discussed whether we're going to hit any of these net zero targets or not, but I think even the idea of having a target of 2045, which at the moment seems very, very far away, is really, really useful because that allows us then to try and sort of put in place the building blocks that will allow us to get to that point. At the moment, and I'm paraphrasing Mike Robinson from Stop Climate Chaos Scotland here, but at the moment it's all net and not enough zero. And what we need to get to is much more zero and a bit less net. What I want to see in the years ahead isn't just a transformation at a technological level or at a statistical level in terms of, oh look, our emissions are dropping by X points you know, every year or whatever. 
what I want to see a transformation of is at a cultural and a personal level. I want people to feel that they're living in a country which is fair. I want people to feel like they're living in a country which has their best interests at heart. And I want them to feel like they're living in a country that actually has a future and that is going to be a safe environment for their children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren to grow up in. We have an opportunity, I think, to try and build that sort of a fair future. And if we do, it's going to be amazing because there's going to be statues of us everywhere and people are going to be like, oh, those guys did the right thing. And if we get it wrong, people are going to be throwing rotting tomatoes at us in our retirement and it's not going to be good fun. So I think we do have an opportunity to try and make real change in a very, very short window. And in many ways, it's actually a really exciting time to be doing this because this is the moment when we're going to have to get it done. We're saying we've got all these targets for 2030. That is, at the last count, about 72 months away. So it's got to happen. It's got to happen now. And we are the ones who are going to do it. So I think it is in our hands. We've just got to try and make it happen. All right. And fingers crossed that we do, because then we'll be seeing an Andrew Williams statue somewhere in Glasgow, which, of course, we can only look forward to. Andrew, thank you so much. There was so much that was so rich and so interesting in what you said today. And for anyone that wants to hear more from you, they can go and listen to the Donut of Doom podcast, which I will be linking in the description. And I don't see how you couldn't because everything you said was just so, so interesting. Thank you very much for your time today. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. Talia, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. So thanks so much.